I think my face is too fat for this thing. I don't know if we're going <laughs> to do it. No, uh, it's <laughs> interesting. Thanks, uh, Eugene, for the really um, sweet introduction. And, um, you know, if, uh, if my wife is the easiest, the most, the criest, criest person in the world, and um, as Kenny mentioned last week, if DL is uh, hardly emotional at all, I'm actually even farther on the other side from DL. So you can imagine my wife and I have some... Uh, Interesting dynamics when it comes to emotional things. But um, let me pray to uh, begin um, our time here. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've brought us in community. We thank you that you have given us your word in our language. And it is a, um, an unspeakable blessing to have it um, for us today. And I do pray that um, your word would be properly understood this morning. I pray that you would um, give me the words to speak um, to your words. And Lord, I pray that that which is from you would be um, clearly stated and quickly remembered. And Lord, I pray that there would not be um, things that are not from you, but Lord, if, if they are, I pray that they would be quickly forgotten. And we um, do thank you for this time to be together. And we do thank you again for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, um, we're going to continue this week in uh, The Incredible Jesus. We're in Mark 2. Um, I, could just, I could use this if it's easier. All right, okay. Um, thanks, guys. It's, uh, <laughs> it's hard to do these. So we're in Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. So um, I encourage you to, uh, to turn there. And if you've got a little piece of paper or the bulletin or something to stick it there, we're going to go to a couple of the passages to help shed light on, on this one. But that's where we're going to camp for most of today. Um, and so there's a lot here, so let's dig right in. Um, <clears throat> and when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing, with, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they did not get near him because of the crowd, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed him. They removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed in which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Um, this story is actually one of just a handful um, or just a, a few of the non-crucifixion slash resurrection stories to appear in all four Gospels. You'll find it in Matthew, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You will find this story. So, um, quick caveat, if the Bible repeats something or if it says something more than once, it's good to uh, take notice of it. So, 
Um, it is also one of the first stories that I've tried in multiple languages to be able to tell and to paraphrase with, with our friends. And, and you will see why in a minute. But in, in this passage, I want to um, highlight, for those of you taking notes, it's in the bulletin. It says, I want to highlight what it says about um, kind of three groups of people, about us in, in general, um, individually, I guess, about us, about, um, about Christ and about the church. So first, what does this passage tell about us? Um, it tells us that we are full of sickness and sin. Those are your two key words, sickness and sin, and they're related. So um, I'm going to address them individually briefly, but um, and how they, I'm going to address them individually now and then how they relate to each other. But first, um, in, the, in this passage, the passage doesn't actually directly um, say this, but that you can be inferred from the context of, of building up to that. And so... Um, I want to do a brief overview or just a couple of points of what sin would have meant, how sin would have been understood by the listeners um, in Jesus' time, both the the first people who read Mark and the people that Jesus was speaking to. So um, the sickness I actually don't really need to speak to. Um, We all get sick. Eventually, the sickness is going to kill us. That's it. I mean, if I'm, we try to in America, we try to uh, we try to delay it. We try to, uh, to to make our lives longer. But in the end, we are all going to get sick and we're all going to die. Um, I'm a baseball guy, Ted Williams. If you know him, widely known as the greatest hitter of all time. He um, had his head cryogenically frozen with the hope that someday it's going to be attached to a body someday. He believed his sickness was going to get healed someday, and. That's great for him, but the uh, the reality is uh, it's it's a pretty um, weak leg to stand on. Um, so that's sickness, but sin is is actually a different animal. And so here's what uh, we're, let's let's first we'll go to Genesis three nineteen. So stick your finger in Mark. Go back to Genesis three nineteen. So as you know, the story goes: man was man and Adam and Eve were created in the Garden of Eden. There was no sickness. There was no death. It was perfect. And then um, God gave a command, and Adam and Eve both uh, violated that command, um, thus showing that they uh, trusted themselves more than God, that they loved themselves more than God. And, um, and they were banished from the garden, and God pronounces a curse. Um, and there's a lot to unpack there, but I want to focus on one um, verse, 319. It's, he's saying this to Adam, but actually it, it comes to all of us. It says, "...by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread." Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It is a powerful, it's actually, you, when you look at the creation story, God creates Adam out of dust, out of, out of dirt, and he makes this living thing, the pinnacle, well, Eve is the pinnacle of creation, but Adam is on the way. And, and then because of their sin, they are going to return to that dead thing they were before. And so um, there was no sickness before there was sin. This is the turning point. This is the start of, of all the, the, the sickness and sin that we see. And um, so the, the sin brings in the, the death, and it actually, understanding what it is, it's actually a rebellion against God. And so keep your finger in Mark 2 and flip to Psalm 51. Now we, we, we zoom forward quite a bit, and here is David, King David, proclaimed to be a man after God's own heart. And um, man after God's own heart was a very violent man. None 
uh, no more so than when he, um, not just violent, but actually very sensual as well. And one day he's, he sends his armies off to war. And um, at the time, the good and brave kings um, would lead their armies into war. David is back in his uh, beautiful palace. He sees a beautiful woman bathing on a rooftop, says, I want her, takes her, finds out that she is, and actually knew, he knew before that she is the wife of one of his most trusted soldiers, one of his trusted commanders. Tries to bring him back um, to, to sleep with his wife, to cover up his sin because he'd found out she was pregnant because of him. And he won't do it. He, um, he thinks of his soldiers sleeping under the stars in the field, and he, uh, he says, I can't be with my wife in, in this in, in good conscience. So David has to resort to greater measures, and he sends a um, secret communique to his highest general, carried by Uriah is his name, the very man, and the, the, the command goes something like, I want you to send some crack troops to attack a city. I want everybody in the squad except for Uriah to know a secret code to retreat when you say and leave Uriah to be slaughtered by his enemies to look like he died in battle. And that is what happened. And David is confronted later by the prophet who tells him the story. And I won't get into the story, but the point is David is convicted of his sin and he is cut to the core and he knows he has, he has sinned. And here's what he says in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Starting in verse 1. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And here's the, the main point. For against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So he saw, even though he wasn't, he wasn't talking about, he wasn't repenting, repenting to Bathsheba and Uriah, which he should. Um, he realized at the core of it, sin, the rebellion, is against God himself. And so as the lawgiver, as the creator, all sin is an offense to God, even as it's offense to other people too. And, and David realized this. It's a really powerful thing. So when we sin against each other, um, we're not just sinning against one person, we're sinning against God. And we can think about that in terms of our, our kids too. Um, so, um, that's kind of where sin, um, sin lies. And, um, how does it apply to us? Um, let's look at Deuteronomy 6, 5. You probably know this passage, but again, keep your finger in Mark. We'll go to Deuteronomy. Again, these are all words that the hearers of Jesus' words would have known. And, um, and especially the scribes and Pharisees. So Deuteronomy 6, 5. In fact, I can say the caveat, if you're taking notes, um, is a good place to do. Just write down the passages. and um, to, It's really good to, to, to know these and where you can find them. Um, this is actually, when Jesus was asked, what is the sum of the law? This is what he quoted, Deuteronomy. Um, you shall love the Lord God, Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So the question then is, um, if sin is an offense against God, this is the, the core of God's command is to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. How, how are we doing in that? 
Um, what are my thoughts in relation to this? Um, if you all could know what I think, you would be appalled. And I think, um, and I, I don't think I'm unique in that. Um, and so, looking at sin is not just what outwardly. I mean, David and Bathsheba and Uriah was is pretty obvious and outward, but it goes a lot deeper than that. And our very thoughts, the very things that we will look at on our computer, the very ways we will speak to our kids or our roommates or our spouse, the way we will handle our money, um, all betrays um, where our heart is in relation to God. And um, and so, I mean, we can be honest, we're not measuring up to Deuteronomy 6.5 um, and the rest of God's law. And so we, just like David, are offending God and God alone. Even when we do the sins in our own heart and we think it's affecting nobody, it still is known and um, by, by God. And so that's kind of some of the nature of sin. There's a lot more to say there. But um, depravity of man is as uh, obvious to me as the nose on your face. And people who have kids, I, I, I can't imagine they don't understand the depravity of man. Um, I love my kids, but uh, just like me, they, they sin against one another, and I sin against them. Um, and so that's kind of the nature of sin, but how does that connect to sickness? So let's kind of bring it back here, and we're going to go now to Second Chronicles 7.14. This one's uh, after the Kings and before the Psalms. This one is actually, uh, you guys might hear this one on occasion, Second Chronicles 7.14. in the context. So David has a son by Bathsheba, Solomon. He, uh, David is promised by God that it's a really, really sweet story in Second um, Samuel 7 where God, David wants to build God a house to live in because he has just a tent as his place of worship and God says, you don't need to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house and I'm going to make someone from your line always be the king over my people. Well, the first one was Solomon. He's famous um, throughout history. And he builds this temple. And it's, it's a pretty amazing structure. And he sacrifices some, uh, who knows, 120,000 sheep, 22,000 oxen. We see that going on outside of our house. You know, the, it's, a, it's a bloody mess. I don't know how else to say it. But it is, it is a big deal. And he is, uh, he, there's, there's a lot to go deeper on that. But this isn't just a small thing. And, and so the temple is dedicated. And um, God appears to Solomon and tells him this. This is 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. So in this passage, there's a forgiveness of sin and a healing that are kind of tied together in some way. And actually, if you even look at it more, it's, it's bringing peace. It's actually the Hebrew word is shalom. It means freedom from sickness. It also means freedom from large armies coming in to destroy your your vineyards and take your children off into slavery. So it's a it's a really an all-encompassing thing. It's somehow tied to forgiveness of sin in that passage. So um, you actually could go to churches today and they will actually bring up this passage and they will say that um, if you're faithfully following God, you should be free from sickness or you should be wealthy. You should have this, that, and the other thing. Um, and if this is all that the Bible was, was this passage, then they'd be right. But I'm going to argue that they are very wrong, and I'm going to do that from the book of Job. You don't have to turn there because I'm going to try to recount the entire book. <laughs> yeah. But um, 
and this is just going to be bullet points, but if you, uh, if you guys have ever studied Job, fascinating book. It is, in all of literature, one of the most, not just in the Bible, but in all of literature, one of the most fascinating books you'll ever see. If anybody tells you Christianity or the Bible is just too simplistic and it's just too black and white, tell, go read Job and tell me what you think about that. So here's what's going on. Job is, in the time before Abraham or around Abraham, he has got a lot of animals, which means he's a rich man. He is happy, wealthy, prosperous. Um, health, wealth, prosperity. That is Job. And then Satan comes to God, unbeknownst to Job, and he says, tells, um, says God, well, your, your guy Job is only righteous because you've given him everything. Of course he's going to love you. Of course he's going to be a good man. He never has had any problem in his life. And Satan says, you take away his wealth and he will curse you. And God says, all right. Takes away his wealth. Doesn't work. Takes away everything he owns. He says, well, he says, will you take away his health and he'll curse you? God says, you may afflict Job. You may give him sickness, but, uh, but do not take his life. And Job is in the depths. I mean, this guy was your, your Bill Gates, and he goes to a street beggar, and he's sitting down on the ground, and he has sores all over his body. And he's got a chunk of pottery, and he's picking his sores with it. His wife is telling him to curse God and die. I mean, he is in a rough spot. And so his friends come to encourage him. And his friends sit around for a week and say nothing. And if they were wise friends, they would have continued to say nothing or left, but they didn't. Job's friends heap scorn on him. They say, it is because you are sinning, Job, that God is judging. God is just, and the good will get good, and the bad will get bad. And Job is saying, look, I know I'm, I have sin, but I am not, this is not deserving of, of my sin. And it's back and forth between Job and his friends, back and forth. And then another friend comes, and he basically says the same thing, although in slightly more respectful language. And then, finally, God speaks. And he speaks in Job 38 to 41. It is one of the strangest passages. I'm not going to read it, but you can look at it. It is a very interesting passage. And it is incredibly po poetic. The whole thing is just this incredibly complex poem. And it can be summed up. I hope I'm not misrepresented. But it can be summed up in about five words. That's nine words. Job, <laughs> shut up. I am God, and you are not. He is saying, where were you, Job? Where were you when I created the, the heavens? Where were you when I laid out the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I, I poured water into the seas? Can you tame the great beasts of the sea? Can you, do you know how all the, the animals I created, how they move and run? Of course, we know a little bit more now, but we've got several thousand years of, of tools to, to learn. But Job didn't. He's like, I, I don't know. And Job, to his great credit, humbles and sums this I am not going to speak. I put my hand over my mouth. I will speak where I do not understand. And, um, and finally, God vindicates Job. Chapter 42 is the last chapter of Job. I always found it strange. I'm like, why? Why is that? He, he never. He does. He does two things. He never tells Job what's going on, but yet he he gives back Job his wealth and his health. Um, of course, Job eventually gets sick and dies. You know, because it doesn't say that he didn't, and everyone else in history has. But um, it it just kind of leaves you with that. Job went his whole life through this entire ordeal, including losing his children. He never knows. He never knew about the conversation between Satan and God in heaven. He never knew. He suffered and suffered and suffered. And it wasn't, God said himself, it wasn't because of his sin. God had other prerogatives. So what that means is 
um, we can see a couple of things. This is what this kind of the foundation of this uh, passage, or, or to, to begin to understand it, long introduction, first point, is one, we all have sickness. Two, we all have sin. And the root of all sickness in general is sin. The root of all death and sickness is sin. Um, but yet we cannot, because of the book of Job, we cannot equate sickness X with sin Y. And you're going to find some people that do that. Oh, so-and-so is sick. Well, they must be sinning. Well, that's what Job's friends said. And God rebuked them powerfully for it. And so um, it makes things very complex. And so we don't want to be fools like Job's friends. So we should really see sin and sickness together related that, okay, sickness comes from sin, but we can't tell which sickness is from which sin. Sickness in general. So when we see people sick on the street, when we hear about people, we pray for people and they're sick, it's not because necessarily they're, they're sinners. Um, it's because we're all sinful because this is the world, not the way it should be. So when we, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm reminded of a story in, um, in, in Western Europe a long time ago, they used to have what maybe places in the U.S. still have it. They had what's called a wake. Before modern medicine, it was hard to tell if someone when they died or not. So they would actually take the person who died and they would put them. Um, there's a movie you can see. Uh, I forget. It. Anyway, you, you can you, they would put the uh, the person who presumed, presumed to be dead in a place where the family and friends and everyone can come and see them. And part of it was to just give them time to make sure that they're dead because you do not want to bury somebody that's that's not dead. But the other thing was to remind, and especially true in places where the gospel is preached, to remind people to have kids come and touch the cold, dead flesh. And you just you recoil at it, as you should. It's not natural. It's not good. It should not be this way. And, and when we see that and we recoil at that, that's not, that's not wrong. It's like, oh, well, death is a natural thing. Well, yeah, it's natural to our experience, but we know in our hearts that there's, there's something wrong about that. And that's where the sin and sickness are most closely related, is with sickness and death in general, not specifically. So that's, um, that's what it tells us about us, um, about sin and sickness. And what does this passage tell us about Christ? Second point. Um, he, is the God, he is God who heals sickness and forgives sin. He is God who heals sickness and forgives sin. So I'm going to tell you a story that's possible. Um, we're in um, Rick Ricky's um, house church. And you, you all know Ricky can be a little bit of a hothead. So let's say I, I come in next time and uh, you know, I walk in, I say some disparaging mark about some work he's doing. And, and you know, Ricky winds up and he's just, he takes me out. I'm, I'm, I'm gone. Teeth are knocked out. I'm, I'm concussed. I'm laying the crushed vertebrae and, and he starts kicking me and my you know rib gets fractured and punctured a lung and, and so I get carted off the hospital and I'm just you know with the tubes and the whole thing <clears throat> and so, so Ricky is uh, we don't know what he feels like and, and Stefan comes up to him and says um, you know Ricky uh, I heard that you just uh, you know you, you punched out Matt and uh, I forgive your sin what do we think about that I hear about that I'm like are you kidding me? This guy's crazy as a loon. It didn't have anything to do with him. Ricky punched me. It's my teeth that are missing. It's my head that was concussed. So, um, and essentially Jesus does this. And so let's look at verses 3 through 5. So these, um, <clears throat> these men came, bringing a paralytic, couldn't walk. 
um, carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above them. When they had made an opening, lay him down on the bed um, on which the paralytic lay. And Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, um, yeah, I'll heal your sickness. No, I didn't say that. He said, your sins are forgiven. There you go. I mean, is that what we expected? If I was one of those four guys, I would be like, really? I mean, we dug a hole in the roof. And it's not for his sin. Sorry. I mean, his, his legs, you know, what we're, you know why we're here. But he, he didn't say that at all. Um, we actually don't have their reaction, but we do have the reaction of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, these were the guys that would understand Psalm 51. They understand, um, and they got really mad. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They got exactly what Jesus was trying to say. Um, what is blaspheming? It's, it's breaking the first and the third commandment. Exodus 20, if you want to look at it. Um, Deuteronomy 5 as well. You shall have no other gods before me. And do not take the, Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain. So, especially when you see Psalm 51, David is seeing all sin as an offense against God the Creator. Jesus is, is taking and he is claiming to be the one who is offended by this man's sin, this paralytic sin. Um, according to Leviticus, Leviticus 24, he could be stoned for this. If he is just a mere man claiming to take the authority of God, he could be stoned for it. Um, now, if Jesus was in, let's say, India or China, or even speaking to the people who used to live in this area of, of Florida, it probably wouldn't have been a big deal. It may have been a little bit, a little bit strange. But in all of history, these were the one people on earth who had an idea of a single, sovereign, almighty, created the world out of nothing God. And he is claiming to have the same power and authority as that God. And so they were very, very mad. And, um, and if he was not really who he said he is, they had every single right to be mad. Um, but then what does he do? Let's look at verse 8. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all. So, um, first thing to mention is the Son of Man. Um, it actually is one of Jesus' favorite ways to um, self-designation. You know, you, you listen to a um, interview with LeBron James, he's referring to himself as myself, myself and my teammates, myself. You know, I just need to practice myself and uh, he uses it all the time. But um, basically, Jesus, that's it's kind of like his way to say I. And it actually comes primarily um, from the book of Ezekiel, where God addresses the prophet as the son of man. And so when, when you see son of man in scripture, Jesus says, the son of man does this, son of man does that. He's saying, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. I'm sorry, I got to point down here. Um, so in this, for the youth theologians, in this passage, you have a, a clear um, testimony of Jesus' divine and human nature together 
with no confusion, with no separation. They're just they're contained in both in the one the one person. Um, and so the important point here is that in healing this man, Jesus lets people see enough of what he can do to believe that which they can't yet fully see. So they can't justify if this. They can't tell for sure if this man's sins are forgiven. They see Jesus' power to heal the sickness. The sickness and sin are some way related. So like, well, he healed the sickness and he said he'd forgive the sin. So it actually, it, it gives me the grounds to believe that which I can't yet see. And that is indeed the very nature of our faith. Jesus, God gives us enough for us to believe that the things he's promised that aren't, haven't yet come, that we have some, some ground to believe them. Um, and so, um, therefore, Jesus is the God who heals the sickness and forgives sin. And so, when you relate that back to Genesis 3, what he is doing is he's actually reversing the curse. The curse was that before in the garden, there was no sickness, no sin. Because a man's rebellion against God, sickness and sin come, and now Jesus is reversing it. So the New Testament, uh, in, in a couple passages, Romans 5, I believe is one, will speak of Jesus, don't quote me on that, will speak of Jesus as the new Adam. So the first Adam came and um, sin entered the world, and the new Adam, Jesus, um, righteousness enters. And so the whole, I mean, there's a reason why this is 2014. There's a reason why the early church decided this was the day we're going to start our new dates from. I mean, everything turned on, on this, this time and what, what the incredible Jesus is doing here. And so when we look at verse 2 again, let's take a look at that. Um, so again, many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even the door, and he was preaching the word to them. I wonder what that word is. This is, this is part of it. This is, this is the reversal of the curse, is, is a core part of the word of the message he was, um, he was saying. And so... Um, so how do we how do we apply this? Um, I'm going to suggest a few ways. We I think this this is going to have great impact on our lives. Um, the first is how do you deal with this Jesus? I mean, is he crazy? Yeah, Stefan forgives Ricky's sin for busting out my teeth. He's crazy as a loon because we know he's a good guy. We know he's not like evil. If he, not, that, not that he would do that, but, but you know, if we know, if we know him well enough, because that's the other option. Is he, is he just crazy as a loon, Jesus, or is he evil? Does he know he's not God, but is claiming to do it? Or do you have to say, look, this whole Bible is just useless, because the entire thing is pointing up to Jesus. It's all building. The entire Old Testament is in many ways through story, through song, through laws, all building up to this one guy. And he's the main point. And if you're saying this can't happen, I mean, you're, you're tossing the whole thing out, really. This, this funny story goes about Thomas Jefferson. Um, took his Bible. You guys probably know this story. And he took a scissors and he... Did I, tell this? I hope I didn't use this analogy last time. <laughs> anyway. But he, um, he looked, read the Bible and he took out with his scissors every bit that did not fit with what he thought um, fit with his reason. Anything miraculous was gone. So what he was left with was a portion of the Ten Commandments. Of course, he didn't want to do the dietary laws because uh, you know, he'd have to give up sausage and among other things. You're left with next to nothing. And you, you can't take the Bible as a book as it is in literature without having to deal with this Jesus. And so um, is he crazy is he evil, is he evil or is, who he, is he who he said he is? Um, and for those of you still unsure about it, I encourage you, I... 
I will challenge you to think and decide for yourself. You, you can't just think he's a good teacher. Um, he's either the total loon, or the most evil person in the world, or, or he is who he said he is. And um, I'll be around afterwards. Um, uh, Eugene and, and some of the other um, leaders will be around. Uh, talk to somebody if this is something you're really seriously considering and, and, and not sure about. Um, so that's the first one. The second thing I challenge you, if you haven't done so, read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with this idea in your head that Jesus came to reverse the curse and of sin and sickness. Just read it again. You're, you're going to see things that pop out that you, you hadn't thought of before. When Because uh, the miracles aren't just about, let's just show how you know great a magician Jesus might be or show how great his power is. It's got a much deeper meaning that every single miracle has a deep meaning um, that, that can be unpacked. Um, especially think about his resurrection from the dead. I'll leave it at that. Um, now, the third thing is I mentioned that this is one of the first stories that um, I've tried to tell as a witness. And I had a friend in, um, when we were in a different city, um, and I was, I was studying business and um, a, a, a school and a master's business. And I had my classmates, a number of them were from Pakistan. They were English-speaking. They were there on scholarship. They had no desire to learn Chinese. They had no desire to do anything about Chinese culture. And, yeah, they, they hated everything about it. So um, they would one day... Um, they were really hospitable, great friends. And so one day, my friend Amin, he uh, invited me to, he made lunch. It, it took him like two hours to make lunch because it takes forever. And they don't have anything else to do. They're not until uh, all afternoon. So we ate lunch, and then we played some ping pong, and then we go, they had taught me to play cricket. It was really, really fun if you ever play cricket. And um, then we're talking in his, in his room, and um, he says to me that, you know, Jesus, we believe in Jesus too. He's just a prophet. And I, I, I tell him this story. I said, um, he, he claimed to forgive God, the sins of, of people he never had met before that we know of. He claimed to forgive everyone's sins, and we worship him, and he's a man. I mean, he, had, he was holding his pen at the time. He just drops it. He says, there's nothing more I can say. But he didn't believe. But the good thing is he understood. He got to the point. He understood that this is not just some guy that you can take in as a good teacher. Um, C.S. Lewis was mentioned before. And I mentioned that you really have three things to think about him. I mean, he's a liar. He's either a liar or a lunatic, or he is the Lord who you owe everything to and who will, by his death and resurrection, save you from the sin that is reflected in all of our sickness. And so, um, as we, so as we go out and we talk about spiritual things with our friends, as we gossip the gospel, as you will, and as we work and play, let's, let's present this Christ, the one that is, I mean, it's, we don't, we don't want to do this caustically, but we can ask questions to, um, to try to pull people out of the, you know, Jesus is my homeboy, or he's my greatest teacher, or he's the greatest helper. You don't need, you don't need Jesus to do that. Confucius is good enough. You know, you don't, I mean, and it would require a lot less of you. So um, it really, he forces us to come to a decision about him. So that's one of the easiest things is when we're, we're talking to people and sharing, and we want to talk about Jesus just, Present him for who he is. We want to do so lovingly. We don't want to come across as, you know, we know everything because the reality is we are as sinful as they, and it is only because of God's grace that we are, are in his good favor. Um, but, but we can kind of push and say, you know, this is what Jesus said. What do you think about this? I mean, he, he forgave this guy's sin he'd never met before. He didn't, and then he healed him. So, um, so that's um, the second point. Third point, then, what does this passage say about the church? I think it was odd. What does it say about the church? Um, 
and that is that we who follow Jesus are in community. You probably could have guessed that without even hearing any of the words I say, but it's, it's actually in here. And in verse 5, Jesus says, when he saw their faith, when he saw their faith, He's actually interacting with these guys in community, and that's interesting. Now, how did they have faith? Well, this is a little bit about the, about the house that they defaced. It's actually, um, there's a lot of people that we work among, not so much in the city, but in the country, that their houses are a lot like this. They're made out of mud bricks. They'll take mud, and they'll just kind of they'll dry it into these, these bricks, and then they'll, they'll you know they'll, uh, build it, and it, it probably goes maybe 10, 12 feet high. And what they do is, because it's so hot, they'll, um, they'll put a... a, a a kind of a railing of brick around the roof, and then they'll have either a ladder or some steps to go up to the roof. Because in the summertime, in, de- in dry desert climates, when you don't have bugs, it is wonderful to sleep on the top of these roofs, roofs because it gets cool at night. You ever want to come and visit us? We'll take you to a place you can actually do this. It's just really great. And so these guys, you know, they, they didn't put windows in the houses because that would kind of be bad for the structural integrity. So they just got the, the door in the front and then you know, some stairs or a ladder to get to the roof. And so these guys are so crowded they couldn't get in. They're carrying this this guy, and so they had to climb up the stairs or up the ladder to get to the top of this this house. And the roof is made out of um, like big uh, tree trunks, and it could only be so. The houses, the size of the houses was limited by what they could find for a tree trunk. So they had to put the tree trunks, and then they put some uh, like bamboo type or you know plant matter and mud, and they would just kind of make this. I mean, like a kid could make it almost. And so they came and they had to, it's funny, in Mark, the, the passage in uh, commentators say is the, literally translated as they unroofed the roof and then they, then they dug and let him down. It's, it's kind of uh, accentuating the lengths to which these guys had to go. So you can imagine, you know, you and your three buddies, you're hauling this guy. Who knows how heavy he was? He never walked and who knows how much food he got. It might have been really heavy. But if it's a ladder, you know, it's like this and it's wood. I mean, it would have been hard to get that guy up there. And then you're dig, 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 dig. And you can imagine the people inside are like, what is going on? And then they, they, they let him down. And so this is a lot of work for these guys. But not only that, um, according to Leviticus 24 also, is that's the eye for eye, tooth for tooth passage, that if you do something, it's actually, it's not a vindictive law. It's actually to contain um, vendettas. But the basic idea is if you do something bad to somebody else, you're going to have to pay for that. So you, 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 know, you kill somebody's ox by mistake. Well, you got to replace it with an ox. Well, you dig a hole in the guy's roof, and you're going to have to make restitution for it. So these guys actually, in doing what they did, they were taking on themselves some of the, um, the, the payment for getting this guy to Jesus. And so that's why I think why Jesus is looking at him saying, because of their faith. It wasn't just this guy. He couldn't even, he couldn't even get himself there. It actually took a community to bring him to Jesus. And so... Um, and he, so he commends their faith, and he actually interacts with them in some way as a, like a spiritual communion. And so, um, so I want to tell you what this is not saying. It's not saying personal choice doesn't matter. Um, I mean, everyone who comes to faith in God has got to come individually, but it is saying that God interacts with us in community, um, which is why we baptize our children. We bring them into the family in the hopes that they will one day, one day believe. It's a communal effort, starting from the time that they're too little to even do anything, but well, you know what. Um, and, and why we take communion as a people of God, why it's not individual, why we ask to examine ourselves, not just in our own relationship with God, but in our relationship with each other before we take communion. Um, and this is why each house church actively seeks, as they're encouraged to actively seek to find neighbors and invite a man to, like those 
four guys bringing in a paralytic, four beggars bringing in another beggar for more food. And so it's a really powerful story that connects us to these, these guys in, in Jesus' day. And um, so this is why I would encourage you, uh, what DL would we all encourage you to get involved with your, your, your house church, to leaders to, to, to really dig into the, um, the instruction that you're getting there. And because this is community, it's like, you know, we're, we're, these, we're these guys working together. Um, and let's give thanks to God for this. It is a great joy to be in community, and especially in this culture, American individualism, to be a group that is about, that interacts with God in community. You, you notice in a number of the songs we're singing, you know, we, we, we to God. It's, um, it's um, in, very, very encouraging. And, and let's bring our sick friends to this incredible Jesus so that they too can be healed of their sin and sickness. Um, for all eternity, because we are all going to die. But if you remember, Jesus is going to give us resurrection bodies. We tell us about kids about every time they get sick. And I try to remember it every time I get sick, that it's the sickness is a, a sign of the, the sin that we in within our whole world that we struggle under, but it is not the end story. And so um, let us now, I want to encourage us, let's take a few minutes to, to, to pray. And, um, and then uh, I'll close in um, two, three minutes. sent Jesus, that he is the um, one sent to reverse the curse, and that um, we can, even in our sickness and even in our struggles, we can see the, the healing and forgiveness that he brings. And I pray that we would know that in a greater way today, and I pray that you would fill us with your hope and joy.